Amen. Thanks, worship team. Hey, we are having uh, just a tad bit of technical difficulty with our, with our wonderful MacBook in the back. Um, they say those things just work. Well, sometimes they don't work great. So if you experience some slide lag today, it's not uh, the Ming boys in the back working the Working the controls, it's probably the computer, so no pointing fingers allowed, okay? Welcome to Bethany again. It is so good to be with you. My name is Jared, uh, one of the pastors here, and it's a delight to be here with you to worship our great God and to now focus our attention expressly on God's Word. We're going to be in the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 13 to 31 today. There's a man that is considered the, the greatest football coach of all time. In fact, some recognize him as one of the greatest coaches, one of the greatest leaders in all of American sports. Vince Lombardi is known for winning, for winning. In seven years, he led the Green Bay Packers to five victories, three of them consecutively, and he is quoted as saying, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. <laughs> winning is not a sometime thing, it's an all-the-time thing. You don't win once in a while, you don't do things right once in a while, you do them right all the time. Winning is a habit. Unfortunately, so is losing. Show me a good loser and I'll show you a loser. I'm not sure that anyone grows up thinking, I want to be a loser someday. We all want to win in our own way, don't we? Everyone wants to reach their goals. Everyone wants to conquer their mountains. No matter how big or how small, winning is important. And according to the Bible, there is one game that is more important than all the others. One game that is vital that every single one of us win. In fact, if you fail to win at this game, all the other games that you have played and all the other games that you may have won mean absolutely nothing. It's a game whose and trophy is eternal, whose destination is paradise, and whose payout is life that is exceedingly better and beyond this one. And it all culminates. The most crucial moment is when each of us will stand face to face with the man with the medals, with the keys to the kingdom, and he asks, what have you done to deserve the prize? What have you done to merit entry into my heaven? What would you say? Are you winning that game? How do you know? In Mark chapter 10, the main person that we're going to focus on is, is, is one man. And from Matthew and Luke's gospel, we know that he is young that he's the ruler of a synagogue, and most importantly, that he is very, very rich. He's a man who's determined to find out how to win. 
And let's go ahead and we're going to read the entire passage today. Mark chapter 10, verse 13, all the way to 31. And then we'll dive into our passage this morning. Would you stand with me out of respect for God's word as we read together? In Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Okay, so you can see from our passage, we have three sections. The first has to do with people bringing children to Jesus. The second involves this rich young man. And the third is a a debrief conversation of sorts uh, for those who stick around after the rich man leaves. And we're going to focus on the middle one, and then we're going to see how the other two tie in to the big idea here. Notice, first off, that the man ran. He ran. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up. This is not an arms folded, nose up in the air, snooty cynic who wanted to put Jesus to the test. We've seen those guys before. This is not that guy. This is a man who was eager. He was passionate. 
And when he found out that Jesus was in town, that, that Jesus uh, could, he could talk to him, well, he bolted. And he headed out as fast as he could to see Jesus. And he gets there, probably panting, out of breath, probably a little jittery. And he falls on his knees to the ground. This was a man who exuded sincerity, humility. He had a desire to show honor. Now, out of all the distinguished, honored people in Jewish society in that day, rabbis were way up here. They were at the top. They were at the top. Now, it was customary in a Jewish home for the children to stand in honor whenever the father, the patriarch, would enter a room. They'd all have to stand up. Proper dignity had to be shown. But there was one exception, and that was if one of the children became a rabbi. In that event, the father was then obliged to stand. That's the kind of respect that was given to rabbis. This man, this man delivered to Jesus the full measure of respect deserved to a rabbi, maybe even more here. And if you and I were standing there, we would probably be thinking, here's a guy who's going to put us all to shame. I mean, here we've been just hanging out, we've been standing around, we've been shooting the breeze with Jesus. This guy's on the floor! I know a teacher's pet when I see one. What's Jesus going to think of us now? By the way, there's some contrast going on here. What a difference there probably was between the way people had looked at this man and the way they had looked at all of those people who were bringing their children to Jesus back in verse 13. All kinds of people bringing their babies to Jesus so that Jesus could touch them, so that Jesus could bless them. This was a customary thing for Jewish parents to do. They would seek out a spiritual leader and they would have them do this sort of thing for their infants. We read that the disciples rebuked them. They didn't want people wasting Jesus' time on these kids. These kids couldn't understand Jesus' teaching They couldn't obey Jesus' teaching, so why should they be allowed to to suck up all of Jesus' time uh, when they're not going to really benefit for Save Jesus' time for those who can really understand, who can really act on this. Contrast that between this rich man, the person who is exactly who should have been sitting there listening to Jesus right at his feet. He's rich, he's young, he's moral, he's eager to listen, he's eager to learn. He would probably do whatever it takes to win. This guy's application, it ticked every box needed to come sit at the master's feet. And the man says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There it is. The all-important question. What do I need to do? Tell me, Jesus. How, how to win? And everyone looking at this man, I imagine, thought, this guy's already a winner. 
He's already a winner. He's young. He's rich. He's showing proper respect to his religious leaders, kind of like those, those kiss-up kids who sat in the very front row back in high school. And I looked at them, and their hair's all perfect, and they got these letterman jackets covered with patches, and they had a way of just asking all the right questions and demanding the teacher's attention, and the teacher would freely give it to them, call on them left and right, teacher's pet. In the case of this man, people would have thought he's already well on his way to earning eternal life. Just the fact that he's rich alone, that gives evidence to the fact that God is blessing him, probably for doing everything right. And now here he is asking Jesus if there's anything else that he can do to be a winner. Man, if this guy doesn't get a thumbs up, two thumbs up from Jesus... No one will. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And that's when Jesus says, come on, stand up. You're good. In fact, everybody, listen up. I want you to look at this man here. This should be an example to all of you. He is the cream of the crop. This is exactly what I've been talking about, and this is exactly what you should aspire to become. No, he doesn't say that. Instead, he asks a question that probably threw everyone for a loop. Why do you call me good? Jesus, are, are you saying that this guy is better than you? That he's making a mistake here? Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Okay, it's not that. He wasn't implying that this man had made a mistake here. Jesus actually was the good teacher. But Jesus is pointing out here that not only is Jesus the good teacher, but if he is truly good, then he actually is God. Because God alone is good. Most importantly... In an instant, Jesus began to rock this man's worldview and implied that this man doesn't even know what good is. Have you ever asked a question in class thinking, wow, everyone's going to be impressed that I asked this question. The teacher is going to, wow, you're really paying attention. And all of a sudden, the teacher turns it right back on you and makes you feel like you're the dummy. You didn't read the assignment last night, did you? I wonder if this man felt that way. Let's get philosophical for just a second here. True goodness. Some might say that it's a relative thing. It's a relative thing. It's a subjective idea. After all, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Truth, it varies from person to person. It depends on your perspective. In fact, fact is more like an opinion. Without a measuring stick, good is a moving target, isn't it? It's a moving target. It could mean almost anything. Typically, it means better, comparatively speaking, to something else. But true goodness, determining something or somebody to be truly good, that's an, Im that's an impossibility without a common universal standard, isn't it? 
And that's what Jesus is talking about here. God, he says, is that standard. No one is good but God alone. Jesus is saying that true goodness is defined. True goodness is defined by God's character. The one and only being who is truly good in existence. Unless you have him as your ruler, you're not going to be able to definitively determine how much goodness something else may or may not have. And you might say, well, people do good things all the time, don't they? Yes, they do. There's evidence of God's goodness all over the place in his good creation, including a lot of the good things that people do. They're giving to charity, they're sharing with others, they're fighting for justice at times. Even some politicians, even some politicians are sometimes trying to make decisions that they actually believe are in humanity's best interests. I know that's hard to believe. But I believe sometimes it's true. But do those good actions make them truly good? The Bible tells us that God doesn't just look on the outward appearance or outward actions. He looks where? He looks right in here. He looks at the heart, 1 Samuel 16, 7. And if the heart isn't lined up with God, then the actions, the good actions that are done don't count as true goodness in God's book. And that's why the Bible can say that all of our righteous deeds, all of the good things that we try to do, they're like filthy rags that no one would want. You just toss away. Maybe you even burn them because they're that bad. The Bible says in Romans 3.10, there's none righteous. No, 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 no. No, not one. No one's good. When it comes to winning in God's rule book, the only thing that really counts is being good outside and in, through and through. And no one meets that standard. No one. Jesus is telling this guy, no one is good but God alone. And we could go around looking at other people all day long, can't we? I'm so much better than her, I'm better than him. Oh, I'm way better than that guy. Maybe you can look at your life and you see the the merit badges covering your shirt, the accomplishments on your resume. You see all the friends that you have. See, I must be good. People like me. And you think you've done pretty well for yourself. Yes, mom was right. I am a good kid. I hate to say this, please do not try to be too offended by this, but if the reality is mom doesn't know what she was talking about, and that's Jesus saying that, not me. There is no one good in God's eyes, not a single one. And this man must have had some inkling that as good as he was, something, something seemed like it was missing here. Otherwise, why would he run up to Jesus and be so eager to find out what more he needs to do to win? What do I need to do, good teacher? Jesus goes on. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother, 
Okay, what a relief. For a second there, I thought I was going to be embarrassed in front of all these people here. But all these things Jesus is talking, Jesus, you're talking about here, I got those under control. I've been playing the game right. What a relief. But Jesus wasn't listing off these commandments to show this man how good he had kept them. He goes straight to God's law because he knows that the law doesn't save anybody. It doesn't save anybody. On the contrary, the law just shows everybody how rotten they are. The law doesn't save you. It condemns you. You know the commandments. Why, yes, Jesus, I do. Verse 20 reads, and he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. In other words, Jesus, I've completed all my courses. I have all the units needed to graduate. Please, Show me my diploma. I'm a winner. You know, if we went down to Huntington Pier and asked people, if you died right now, stood before God, and he asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? What do you think most of them would say? I'm willing to bet money that many of them would say, yeah, if there is a God, who really believes in him anymore. But yes, why not? I try to live a pretty good life. Better than that guy. I think that's where this guy was. Verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. That's a, a little odd, isn't it? Why would Jesus love him after he said that he's kept all the, the commandments. Is that because Jesus actually thinks he, he did a good job? He's doing it really, really good. Is it because Jesus finally stumbled upon someone who wasn't an absolute loser? Vince, here he is. We finally found a winner for you. No. Jesus loved him like Jesus loved the city of Jerusalem as he was about to enter it. You remember in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, he's filled with compassion because here is a guy who thinks he's so good and yet he couldn't be more wrong or more lost. It's kind of like when a toddler comes out and they're so excited to tell you, I, I put on all my clothes. And you see their pants are on backwards, their shirt is inside out, their head's coming through the arm hole. Or like when my youngest daughter comes out and with, a, uh, with a brush and says, I, I, did, I brushed my hair. And you, you look and the front's actually kind of some hairs going straight. And then, good job, good job. And then she tur turns around to put the butt brush back in the bathroom and hair's sticking up like a peacock in the back. And you just go... Uh, how can you not love that? Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. You're missing one thing. It's just, just one small thing, my friend. Go sell it all. Give it away. Are you kidding me? Come again? What? Really? No, you've got to be joking, Jesus. 
And maybe some of us are feeling the same way. Maybe some of us are saying, Jesus, is, is this what it takes? Is this what everyone has to do to get into heaven? This is the secret to winning. You just got to sell it all and give it all away. You want us to go live up in the hills or out in the desert somewhere with rags on some sort of ascetic monks here. Is that what you want? I don't think Jesus is saying that. Not to all of us. I don't think that this is a prescription for everyone who is to follow Jesus. Instead, what he's doing here is what the law is supposed to do for all of us, and that is open our eyes to the fact that as hard as we try to play the game by the rules, we've broken them and we forfeited the game. This man thought he kept all of the commandments, and yet he broke the very first one, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus said, get rid of it. Make sure God is your number one treasure here, your first and only love. And yet at the same time, Jesus knew that as hard as this man worked to play the game by the book and be good, a God-honoring person his heart loved something else more than it loved God. And someone might say, well, that's just ridiculous. What kind of standard is that? Who on earth can follow that sort of playbook? Nobody. That's the point. Since men and women first walked away from God in the garden, choosing their, what they wanted over what God wanted, they've completely handicapped their ability to love him more than anything else. It just, you just can't do it. We're failures. We're losers. So people might, some people might look better than others. Some people might put on a better show, but even the best loser is still a loser. Vince was right. Show me a good loser. I'll show you a loser biggest problem with this rich kid and so many people today is that they're con they've convinced themselves that losers can win the game. If only I'm better than that guy. If only I can do enough good things to outweigh the bad things. If only I can do all the good things that good people do be kind to others, share when I've got more than enough, give up my seat for the elderly, do my part to save the environment, or flatten that curve? And Jesus says, you're delusional. You're delusional. You're the saddest kind of loser there is, the kind that doesn't even realize that they're a loser. When Jesus tells the man to go sell everything, that he has to give it all away, he, hasn't, he wasn't actually saying that the man could actually earn his way to heaven. He wasn't saying, you're almost there. You're so close. Come on, just a little bit more. Try a little bit harder. Dig deep. Last, we said a few minutes ago, he was simply trying to open his eyes to the reality that he couldn't do it, to come to the realization that he couldn't be good enough. And Jesus was trying to lead him to throw himself at the mercy of the only one who could truly give it, the only one who is truly good. 
But a man doesn't do that. A man does what so many people do in our world today, and it's tragic. In verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. No one wins this game. This all-important game, the game with eternal prizes and eternal losses. No one wins it by striving, by straining, by accomplishing. The little babies that were brought before Jesus, they couldn't do anything. They were babies. They're completely helpless, completely dependent, completely at the mercy of their parents to keep them alive. And yet, do you remember what Jesus said about these babies? Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What? How can that be? How can these kids do with this man of this caliber and this refinement and this accomplishment not do? How can they measure up and he not measure up? It's because in God's kingdom, only the losers win. Only the ones who are completely dependent upon his grace, like a child is completely dependent on their parents. Only those who look at all the things that they could place their trust in, give them significance, be their savior, and see that those things are just a complete waste. Only those who let loose their grip on, on trusting in money or their health or a, or a vaccine or a government program or a politician or an exercise routine or a health, healthy habit or some secret knowledge or academic study and look to the heavens and say, you, you alone are God and you alone are good, not me. You alone are my one and only hope. I've tried to do it on my own and I've lost but thanks be to God for sending Jesus Christ to sub in the game and win it on my behalf. Titus 3.5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you were saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. And then 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. Only the losers win. They win by leaning on the one who won in their place, and that's Jesus. It's only, if only this rich young man would have looked to Jesus. If only he would have seen himself and his heart and admitted defeat and said, I can't do it. I can't, I got too much money here. I can't give this Jesus. I, I can't do it. I can't be saved on my own. If only he would have let go so that he could have experienced the rush of eternal treasure that would have been let loose over him. What would you do? 
verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. They were amazed. If not this guy, Jesus, then who? How can it be done? Verse 24, Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Camels don't go through needle eyes, do they? It doesn't matter if they're literal. It doesn't matter if they're figurative. It's impossible. And so it is with rich people who are trusting in their riches, depending on their riches. So it is with beautiful people who are trusting in their appearance. So it is with smart people who are relying on their intellect. So it is with successful people trusting in their accomplishments or their trophies or their promotions, their titles, with creative people and trusting in their creativity, with entertainment enthusiasts. Pleasure seekers, thrill seekers, living to experience every stimulating sensation and awe-inspiring attraction possible. None of them can make it. It's impossible. They all lose. And they were exceedingly astonished, verse 26. And he said to them, they said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. You can't win by your own effort. It doesn't work that way. It's only by God's good grace. Babies don't survive except for the good grace given to them by their parents or someone subbing in as a parent. In the same way, no one wins the game of all games without total dependence upon the grace of God. Only the losers win. Only the ones who acknowledge their inadequacy and rely completely on God. Have you come to that point? Maybe you're not even in this room. Maybe you're watching this online. Maybe you're listening through some podcast app or something like that. Have you come to that point like a child cries out just helplessly for the help of their parents? Have you let go of everything else and thrown your arms up in the air and cried out for mercy and the grace of your good Father in heaven? Don't turn and walk away. Winning this game isn't just everything. It's the only thing. There's nothing more important than knowing that you have a place in the winner's circle on the other side. Now, there are many of us who have already crossed that line. We've already done that. And maybe you're asking, what about us? We, we did that. We loosed our grip. We let go of all those things. We looked up and threw our hands up in the air. And we cried out to you, God. We need you. We trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross in paying for every single one of our sins and washing us clean. But, but what, about, what about us? Peter was essentially asking that same thing. It says in verse 28, he began to say to him, to Jesus, see, 
We've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake, for the gospel's sake, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. We won't go into a lot of detail here. But let's just make sure we understand that losers, those who let go for the sake of Christ, according to Jesus, are the ones who will truly gain. The here and now may not be easy. You might be looking at some very real persecutions. Maybe you're experiencing some of them right now. Maybe they're just on the horizon. Maybe it's going to be worse than you anticipated. There may be pain in the night, but joy comes in the morning. Only the losers win. Trust, persevere, testify. Look steadily on toward the prize. Only the losers win. Lord, we come before you, and you see us as we are. There is no, no hiding the fact. There is no polishing up our resume and fooling you, Lord. We are who we are. We have failed, and we are needy. In fact, we are in desperate need of you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for looking at our lowly, pathetic estate, Lord, and sending Jesus out of your great love for us that we might be rescued who don't deserve rescue, that we who are lost might be found and blind might see, might be given hope and an eternal future that we, losers, might enter into the winner's circle, Lord. We thank you as only those who have nothing can thank the one who has given them everything. Thank you, Lord. And I pray, Lord, for those who have not yet come to that realization. They're still wrestling with all of this. They're still trying to make it on their own, trying to convince themselves, convince others, and convince you that they can be good enough, that they can measure up. Lord, open their eyes. Just as Jesus Christ mercifully did for this young man, open their eyes that they might see their need for you and that you are their one and only hope and unlike that man, may they run to you, fall upon you, and say, Jesus, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Lord, we love you. We thank you. I pray that you would build up and encourage your people and lead more and more to yourself for your glory, amen.